Well, hello, hello. Welcome back to Loki's Librarian. I am your librarian, Katrina. If you are new here, welcome. This is where I am reading through the enormous library of books you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and I tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. It is the last Sunday of the month, which means that we are on to the 15th president, James Buchanan, making this week's book of the week. A very dully covered, I'm pretty sure it used to have a dust jacket, although it no longer does. This is President James Buchanan, a biography by Philip Shriver Klein. The cocktail was a little bit trickier. Um, throughout the book, I found several nicknames for him. One was the Sage of Wheatland, Wheatland being the family home that he created for himself and like his nine million nieces and nephews that he ended up raising. The other nickname was Old Buck and there was a third that was more for his followers, which they called themselves the Buccaneers. Um, but through the power of Google, I found a cocktail recipe called Sage Old Buck and thought, well, let's try that. So Sage Old Buck is one pinch of black peppercorns, three quarter ounce lemon juice, three quarter ounce sugar syrup, three quarter ounce ginger beer, a half ounce of pear liqueur, one and a half, half ounces of scotch whiskey, a quarter ounce of vanilla syrup, and one sage leaf to garnish. There's a lot of recipes in this one. You know how nervous I get about kitchen sink cocktails, but we're going to see how this goes. You need to be closer to hand. So let's do this. Dum, dum, dum. James Buchanan was born April 23rd, 1791 in Go Cove Gap, Pennsylvania to James Buchanan Sr. and Elizabeth Spear Buchanan, both of Irish descent. I mean, like literally, they were both born in Ireland. James and his siblings were first generation Americans. There were 11 Buchanan children, including James, three of whom died in childhood. James was the firstborn son. He's the second born child, but firstborn son. His older sister died in, in childhood. A pinch of peppercorns is not going to be much. I'm going to do three, three peppercorns. He was the second born, firstborn son, the only son for the first 13 years of his life. So he was kind of pampered and held the weight of family expectations on him uh, throughout his childhood. Three quarter ounce sugar syrup. I have to muddle. There's muddling involved. This is a detailed cocktail. Muddle those little peppercorns up. Crush the peppercorns. Muddling has been achieved. He held the weight of the family expectations on him. He was educated at the Old Stone Academy in Mercersburg and graduated from Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, but he only barely graduated. And not because he was getting bad grades. He only barely graduated because he was kind of a party boy when he was at college to start. Um, not throughout his whole career, but like his, between his... When he finished his second year of college, and they only had three years then, so he, you know, they, they had freshman, junior, senior. They didn't have the sophomore class yet. So when he was in his second year of college, he became such the party animal that he was expelled, um, which his father was very disappointed in him. He, he pulled the disappointment card, shamed the hell out of James, made James go back and, and beg for his place back, which he did and which he received. And so he returned to uh, Dickinson College three-quarter ounce lemon juice. Perfect. Went to the dean of the college or the, the, the board of the college, begged his spot back with, and they let him return. And then he buckled down so studiously that he was almost valedictorian of his class. He was arguably the best student. The reason he was not valedictorian was that his ego got in the way. Um, literally. 
uh, his hubris was right there. He was allowed to graduate, however, his attitude, because he was so sure that he was the very best and they should let him do the, the valedictory speech, they're like, no, you have been kind of a problem child, you're very bright, you're very gifted, but you're kind of an ass, so you don't get to be the valedictorian. It's going to be this other guy. You can still speak at graduation, but you don't get the top notch. Valuable life lesson. Don't be an egotistical dick. When he, after he graduated, like basically every other president we've had except for Taylor, he was a lawyer and a really, really good lawyer too. Um, by the time he entered Congress, or the, the Pennsylvania, no, by the time he entered Congress, U.S. representatives, he was making $11,000 a year, which in today's money would be $220,000 a year. So he was very successful as a lawyer. Um, I'm nervous about this one because it's a shaken one, but it only has a little bit of the ginger beer, so hopefully it won't explode like the last one did. We're going to find out. Part of his success as a lawyer is that he had an encyclopedic knowledge of the law, and there is one case where he's defending a guy who was being sued for threatening somebody, like literally, you know, you know, people talk Well, the guy that was doing the talking got sued by the guy he was talking to. And Buchanan was defending the, the guy that was being sued. And so Buchanan got the offended party on the stand, a.k.a. the plaintiff. And the, this is like a literal court transcript. Buchanan, well, sir, suppose you were a man of more nerve, a man not easily frightened by threat. Put yourself in a position of a courageous man. Would you have cared for the threat of my client? Plaintiff, I am as much a man of courage as anybody else, sir. Buchanan, then you are not frightened when my client threatened you. No, sir. You are not afraid of him. No, I am not. Well then, why did you bring this charge? I, I moved for dismissal and it was dismissed. Now, apparently, being a punk ass bitch is not limited to 21st century. Now, where he really built his reputation though was in defending Judge Walter Franklin. Now, I'm just twisting. See, Judge Walter Franklin was a Federalist judge, okay? Um, this was back before, well before the Republicans, um, the Democrats were not even quite a thing. It was the Republican Democrats for the party of Jefferson, uh, Madison, Monroe. So he was a Federalist. Uh, Monroe was, and so was this judge. And the Democratic Republicans in the district kept suing Franklin because they dis disliked his rulings. And Buchanan kept defending him in these nuisance suits and winning because they were nuisance suits. There's always people who are willing to do that. So he kept winning, and because he was not only winning, but winning defending a judge, his clients were like, well, if my suit goes before that judge that he just successfully defended, I'll bet you I get a good favor, or a good ruling in my favor. And so his client list was sky high. He was earning a ton of money. And that's where he was at in the 1820s when he went into the U.S. House of Representatives. Now, during all of this time, Buchanan never married, and he was, in fact, a lifelong bachelor, which started in his 20s. Uh, he had been engaged to Anne Coleman, who was a very wealthy heiress, but due to the financial panic of 1819, which kept his law practice hopping, Miss Coleman basically got her feelings hurt, believing he should pay more attention to her, and broke off their engagement. And this was helped along. This was helped along by some rumor mongering by other people in the area claiming that Buchanan was um, flirting with other girls and Miss Ann Coleman wasn't having any of that and so she broke off the engagement and then shortly thereafter died. Now the belief is she died of a broken heart and Buchanan was pretty much 
Like, her family wanted nothing more to do with him ever because how dare he break her heart. So he was not welcomed at the Coleman's ever again. I get it. And um, never married. He did get engaged briefly for a period of time, but that also never happened. The engagement was broken off mutually, ultimately. Quarter ounce of vanilla. Oh, good. The uh, ginger beer did not explode. That makes me very happy. Strain over ice. If it's good, I will drink it all. If not, I will spit it out. Garnish with sage. He did end up becoming like basically the rich uncle to a plethora of nieces and nephews. Remember he had, there were um, eight surviving Buchanan children. He's the only one who never married. Also the only one who never had children. And he survived all but one of his siblings. So all of his nieces and nephews ultimately came to depend on him for their health, well-being, and raising because their parents kept dying on him. So, and he, he was fine with that, truly. He, he was pretty generous. I mean, he was exacting. He was a little bit of a penny pincher in that if he made it alone, he expected it to be repaid. But he did care for his nieces and nephews as a you know good family man should. Um... Politically, Buchanan served in the Pennsylvania legislature first before being elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1821. Now, around this time, the Federalist Party is starting to collapse, and when Monroe followed the tradition and decided to limit himself to two terms, Buchanan had to pick if he would stick with the Federalist candidate of John Quincy Adams or back a different candidate. Now, ultimately, he wanted to back, I believe it was Calhoun, but when Calhoun dropped out of the race, Buchanan decided to throw in with Jackson's campaign. Uh, now, obviously, Jackson lost that one. Well, that's good. Oh, that's dangerously good. Oh, you can really taste the pear and the vanilla. And the scotch is there for the kick, but you can't really taste it, although the scotch isn't bad either. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Now, he stayed loyal to Jackson throughout the whole John Quincy Adams administration when Jackson was elected. And so in 1831, his party loyalty was well rewarded because Jackson sent him to Russia as the American minister to Russia. And while there, Buchanan learned what we all know from the safe distance of 200 years, which is when in Russia, Russia will open your mail. Um, he objected to that, but he also objected that all of his official correspondence was forwarded to him from the American Embassy in Paris. So the United States would send the mail, the administration would send the mail to Paris. U.S. Embassy would receive it there. And then rather than forwarding it by courier directly to Buchanan, the American Embassy would send it to the Russian Embassy and say, hey, be a dear and deliver this for us. So Russian was like, glad to. No problem. We'll totally deliver that to you, and I swear we're not going to open your mail. But, of course, they totally opened all of the mail, and Buchanan never received a single piece of correspondence that hadn't been pre-read by the Russians. And he cautioned the administration, don't, don't do this, but if you are going to do this, if you're going to insist on forwarding me the mail through the Russian embassy, don't put anything in writing you don't want the Russians to read, because they're, they're reading my mail. Now, when he returned from Russia, he was immediately appointed senator by Pennsylvania and served in that capacity until Polk was president, at which point Polk commandeered him and assigned him to be secretary of state, which Buchanan did very well, and he did for all four years of Polk's presidency.
Now at this point, Buchanan was like, I'm uh, done. I'm going to retire. I like so many of his predecessors to the White House, he was ready to retire and live the good life. He had built up a really healthy nest egg through wise investing and the fact of his earlier very successful law business. And so he went to his home at Wheatland and was happy to basically live there and raise his nieces and nephews. And he stayed retired throughout the Taylor and Fillmore administrations. I mean, he Seriously, he kind of dipped his toes into party politics, tried to get patronage where he could for the, the Pennsylvanians, but pretty much stayed out of it until Pierce was elected. And then Pierce called on Buchanan to serve as minister to the United Kingdom. Now, as discussed last month, Pierce's Secretary of State, Marcy, who at this point becomes Buchanan's boss, was grossly ineffective as Secretary of State. I and mean, he, he issued directives that made Buchanan's job difficult, such as insisting that you should not wear court dress when going to court, which resulted in Buchanan not being received at court because he wasn't dressed appropriately to meet the Queen. So things like that. It made his job difficult, not necessarily impossible. He did ultimately meet the Queen. They got along fairly well, so well that several years later, when the Prince of Wales was doing a tour of Canada, Buchanan was president. He reached out to the Queen and said, hey, while he's in Canada, would you like him to come down and do a royal tour of Washington, D.C. and be my guest? And that kind of helped to cement ties and relations between England and America. And that was Buchanan's doing. So he was quite diplomatically able, very, very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Suave, I guess. And he, he was well-liked uh, and, and likable. Now, even though he was basically hamstrung by Marcy's instructions, he was success, as successful as could be expected, which was basically just meant that he managed to not burn any diplomatic bridges. Is my camera doing the thing? My camera's doing the thing. So he stayed in London basically begging for a recall order because he wasn't happy and he wasn't being allowed to do his job because Marcy basically wanted all of the glory Never mind that the glory would have totally been reflected on him as the one who assigned Buchanan. Didn't matter. So finally, he got his re he received his recall orders in early 1856, and he returned to the United States just in time for his own nomination to president, and was then elected in November of 1856, swearing in on March 4th, 1857. Now, he inherited one hell of a mess from Pierce and Fillmore, to be honest. The Compromise of 1850, which set up Bleeding Kansas, left Buchanan to try and staunch the bleeding, which just, it wasn't going to happen. There's no way that was going to happen. Top me off here, sorry. So, Buchanan, trying to calm things down in Kansas, sent Robert J. Walker to Kansas with the intent, his goal was to have a plebiscite solely on the question of slavery in Kansas. A plebiscite is basically an open, a, a truly democratic open forum where each person gets one vote, they vote on an issue of a specific populace, okay? And the one issue, single issue he wanted to know about was how Kansas felt about slavery. Did they want it to be a free state? Did they want it to be a slave state? What happened is Walker shows up and told them that they needed to vote on a state constitution and heavily implied that the preferred constitution should be anti-slavery because the client climate in Kansas did not really support growing crops that were slave dependent, i.e. cotton and tobacco. What happened was massive voter fraud. 
at, at this point in, Can in Bleeding Kansas history, we literally have two separate governments have set themselves up in this territory. You've got Lecompton and you've got Topeka. And Lecompton, which provided the constitution ultimately, was heavy on the slave favored side and Topeka was the abolitionist side. So the Compton Constitution is written, heavy voter fraud shows up. I mean, and I'm talking, man, I know people are still debating the whole 2020 election, but this was obvious. Like in a place where they had like 12 people registered to vote, they'd get 4,000 votes. So, I mean, there, there was no question that it was fraud, but they had they didn't know what to do about it because they didn't have voter rolls. Most people didn't have voter ID. A lot of people didn't even read, couldn't read. Um, Basically, the way to prove that you were a resident and eligible to vote was to provide tax receipts, and a lot of them didn't want to be taxed by the government. Go figure. I kind of agree with them there. Massive voting fraud happened. Ultimately, the, the Compton Constitution was accepted as is, meaning as a slaveholding state, and this results in the abolitionists becoming more militant and violent. Uh, culminating with John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, which resulted in Brown being hung. So all of this, I mean, Kansas was just, he inherited a mess and there was, there was no fixing it. When the midterm elections of 1858 resulted in the Republicans gaining a foothold and basically parity, meaning they, they more or less had equal footing with the Democrats, except that the Democrats themselves were a house divided at this point, with some of them saying, yeah, we should probably go for abolition, and then others saying, no, no, states' rights, the South has the right to own slaves. Basically, they were completely divided on this. Um, the question being, and of course the Dred Scott decision, which was settled in 1857, right when Buchanan was swearing into office, said that, well, slaves aren't citizens, so they don't have rights, and that just complicated things even more. Buchanan gets hatred for that, but that was the Supreme Court decision at the time, not his. He just was the president at the time that it was announced. Part of the problems of the 1858 midterms was Douglas's, Stephen Douglas's refusal to get with the party program and his insistence on running his own race. Uh, and Buchanan tried multiple times to pull Douglas back into the Democratic fold, but Douglas was basically going, well, I can win a lot of points by hating on Buchanan, so I'm just going to hate on Buchanan and tried to kind of keep himself center ground. I mean, the 1850 compromise was Stephen Douglas's doing, and he was trying to keep that center line between the abolitionists and the slave-owning Southern states. Uh, uh, he was shooting to be the sole Democratic choice for president in 1860, and part of that was keeping the abolitionist base in Illinois happy with demonizing Buchanan, while also trying to maintain that the state's rights of the South, meaning the right to own slaves, was totally allowable under the 1850 compromise. It was just a mess. And all of this was dumped on Buchanan's head. It's problematic. All of this changeover in Congress results in what's called the Covode Committee. And I'm trying to be very careful how I pronounce that because it's not the other C word, it's Covode. It was named after a the guy who headed it. There we go, Covode Committee was John. I could have guessed John. So it was named after John Covode, who headed the committee, and basically it was set to investigate Buchanan and his administration for impeachable offenses. And as far as Buchanan goes, they didn't find any, find anything. And they, they tried to point out, they wrote this huge long document that, they, you know, that he was using patronage to assign people to positions, which 
literally every president had done since George Washington. Um, they argued that they, he was using the position to grant government contracts to friends. Not unusual. That happens today. Basically, they didn't find anything on Buchanan. They did find mismanaged funds and graft in his cabinet, uh, some of it even rising to criminal levels, but on Buchanan himself, they didn't find anything that was actually unusual or illegal for a presidential position. When he accepted the nomination, and I believe during his inaugural speech, Buchanan explicitly stated that he would be a one-term president. He did not want to run twice. This was a one-shot deal. His goal was to steer the country through bleeding Kansas and try and find a path to peace and compromise between the southern slave owners and the northern abolitionists. And throughout his entire term in office, he realized that this was a fool's errand. We, and we know this based on references he makes in his own writing and during comments that he made that were recorded that basically this, the Civil War was decades in the making and essentially unavoidable. Right. They're two completely conflicting ideologies. The, the, on the one hand, the belief that all men are created equal and should be free, and the other belief that it doesn't apply to some men. And those two, there's no way they were ever going to compromise and find a happy medium. And he, he figured that out quite rapidly once he was in. Not a hell of a lot he could do about it besides try and stave it off for another decade. Obviously that failed. He wanted to help the Democrats choose the most likely candidate to win, which was not Stephen Douglas, because Douglas had already split the party severely. Ultimately, the election results of 1860 were split among four candidates. You had Abraham Lincoln, John C. Breckinridge, who had been Buchanan's vice president and was the official party nominee for the, the Democratic Party. Uh, John Bell, and then Stephen Douglas. Now Lincoln won with 180 electoral votes, and it was not even close. Breckinridge got 72, which was less than half. Bell got 39. Douglas got 12. So, I mean, even if all of the other votes had been for one candidate, if they had all thrown in behind Breckinridge and it had only been a two-party decision, Lincoln still would have won. The day after the election, South Carolina seceded. Now, we're taught that South Carolina seceded as a result of Lincoln's being elected, which is true, but I think on some level I had always assumed they waited to secede until after he was sworn in. They did not. They waited to fire the first shots until he was sworn in, but they actually seceded like, boom, we don't want him as president, he does not represent us, and that was their argument, is that the president only sits with the consent of the governed. And Buchanan disagreed with that. He's like, no, we all, all the states have signed on to the Constitution. You've all signed on to this representative republic. This is the representative that has been chosen by your peers, essentially. This is where we're at, which is probably a pretty hearty message for a lot of people these days. And so now we kind of enter into the stuff of historical legend, which Klein does an outstanding job in debunking the legend. Now, the legend, as told by the 19th century spin doctors, was that Buchanan was doing everything he could to help the South secede, that he was smuggling them arms and ammunition, that he pushed for the Civil War, and in reality, he was very much against the Civil War. Um, the only arms that almost made it South was a cannon that his Secretary of War had ordered South, which Buchanan stopped because he didn't think it was needed down there. From the time Lincoln was elected and South Carolina seceded until the first shot, well, until Lincoln was sworn in, actually, 
Buchanan tried constantly to communicate with Lincoln to determine how Lincoln wanted things handled, which was unusual. Typically at that time, uh, there was no working hand-in-hand -hand with the incoming administration, all right? The guy who was president was president until the new guy was sworn in. And however the guy handling it wanted it done, that's how it was done. But Buchanan saw the writing on the wall. He knew this was coming. He knew it was unavoidable. He wanted Lincoln's input because he didn't want to just dump this mess on the new president. And Lincoln never responded. When Fort Sumter asked for reinforcements, the Republicans controlled who controlled Congress at this time refused to send them. And I know that it's not popular knowledge today, but in the 19th century, it was acknowledged and well known that only Congress could declare war. Only Congress could actually order those reinforcements, which Congress refused to do, which tied Buchanan's hands. There was nothing he could do at that point. So a war by executive order was not a thing in the 19th century. And the only executive orders Buchanan issued in his time as president were fully in line with the Constitution and existing law. He was a lawyer, an excellent one, remember that? Uh, so for example, when South Carolina seceded in the intervening four months between Lincoln's election and his swearing in, Buchanan's entire cabinet abandoned him over this issue. Uh, most of them thought that, because a lot of them were Democrats and Southern Democrats, thought that he should back the secession. When he didn't, they started jumping ship. As Congress was not in session, one of the executive authorities he would use would be to appoint new cabinet members, which he could do for up to six months before requiring congressional approval. The Republicans at that time were very determined to dump the whole civil war on Buchanan, claiming it was all his doing because he did not prevent South Carolina from seceding. The problem with this is that South Carolina had every reason to fear the Republicans were coming for their slaves because they were. Now listen, when somebody tells you their plans, don't assume it's hyperbole, all right? The abolitionists in the preceding decade had become ever more violent, culminating in bleeding Kansas and Harper's Ferry. The South saw the writing on the wall, even if Buchanan and Lincoln did not wish to immediately acknowledge it. Um, Every step he tried to take to stave off the Civil War was stonewalled by the Republicans in Congress. He recommended a constitutional convention. He recommended reinforcing Fort Sumter. He made speeches and wrote scads of correspondences trying to bring the South back to the fold. And every move he made, they were like, oh, well, see, see, he's meeting with them as delegates. He shouldn't be doing that because they're, they're, you know, they're a foreign country now. Well, no, he was still seeing them as U.S. citizens. And he was trying to reach compromise and bring them back. And it was just a mess. And at this point, I'm not sure anyone could have prevented what was coming. And having read this book and the preceding books on all the presidents, I'm a little bit clearer now on what Barbara F. Walter meant in her book on civil wars a few weeks ago about why the South seceded. I'm not sure that's the whole story. I have a book on the civil war specifically that I think I'm going to read in August, but her logic is holding sound so far for this one. As you know, there's quite a bit I disagreed with on her there. But that one, I'm like, okay, I think I can see where she's going with that one. Anyways, while the Republicans were bound to hang this war on Buchanan's neck, I mean, they were determined. And history has obliged them by consistently ranking him one of the worst presidents for his failure to prevent the Civil War. One very good thing about Buchanan was his consistent chronicling of his life. One of the reasons he had such an encyclopedic knowledge of the law is that after every case, every single case he ever argued or appeared in, 
he wrote down what the case was, who won, and why. And then he cross-referenced this to other case law, existing case law, case law that he had been involved with. And this habit stood him in very good stead as his addresses to Congress and official correspondence all bear out his efforts to stop what was coming. But as the saying goes, it takes two to tango, and his prospective dance partners were rejecting every advance he made. Furthermore, in a particularly telling passage at the end of the book, several passages from Lincoln's inaugural address mirror closely phrases from Buchanan's last address to Congress. I mean, like, if this were a 21st century political race, Lincoln would probably be accused of plagiarism. They were that closely mirrored. So the two men were not, in fact, that different, and Buchanan never had an unkind thing to say about Lincoln. He thought quite highly of Lincoln and truly mourned when Lincoln was assassinated. And this, despite the lack of communication from Lincoln uh, during the run-up to the inauguration. Buchanan knew that it was coming, and he tried very hard to loop Lincoln in so Lincoln wouldn't be blindsided. I mean, hell, if Lincoln had responded, had communicated with the Republicans in Congress and authorized reinforcement of Fort Sumter, how much would history have changed? I mean, my God. Maybe then it would have been the three-month war that everybody thought it was going to be, um, except for Buchanan. Buchanan was like, there's no way. This, this is going to be at least three years, and they vilified him all over again when he voiced that opinion. And when it did drag on, the Republicans, needing somebody to blame even more, started dragging him in the papers so that everybody hated him. Literally everybody. People that he had known for, for 50 years would no longer look at him. And in a very mean-spirited act, which is so reminiscent of today, Congress canceled his franking privileges um, so that Buchanan couldn't even respond and defend himself. Uh, franking privileges, when back then, I mean, from George Washington on, every single president who had ever sat was granted free postage for life. So he could send, all of his correspondences were completely free. People could write to him for free, okay? They canceled that. So you could write to him, you'd have to pay your own postage. And if he wanted to respond, he would have to pay the postage. And if he'd had his franking privileges, he could have sent a rebuttal to every newspaper in the country. Instead, he was left silent in the face of the onslaught. He couldn't even respond. I'm glad I picked this book. It's an older one. It was written in 1962, but it was a balanced, nuanced review of a really maligned man who I think was genuinely trying to steer the country away from catastrophe and was met with extreme resistance by egos that were larger than his. That's a tough situation to be in. When you see something like that coming, you can't get people to like shut up and listen to each other long enough to prevent it. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who would really empathize with that position these days. There's a lot of ugliness out there. and People aren't willing to talk to each other anymore, especially no thanks to social media, which is just not that social. I can't place him at the bottom of my list. Right? I know that, that most people do place him at the very bottom because he couldn't prevent the Civil War. Well, nobody could have. All right? By this point, we have literally decades of tension over this one not insignificant issue that was pretty much determined to explode the way it did. There, I... I the only way to have avoided the Civil War would have been to not have slavery in the Constitution at all, to say, no, all men are created equal, we're doing away with slavery. That probably would have been the only thing to prevent it. But then 
history itself would be very different because I'm not sure the South would have come on to the to, to the United States. We probably would have had two countries from the get-go at that point. And who knows, right? Easy to speculate, but it's not so easy to say what would have actually happened. That's why we have historical fiction. Excuse me. Historical alternate fiction. I'm going to place him at 10th, I think. 11th. I'm going to put him behind Zachary Taylor. I mean, Taylor was pretty solid as a guy. Uh, Buchanan did what he could, but no one would let him lead the country to peace. And you can't blame one man for the actions of others. He's not responsible for what other people did. And he tried very hard to bring them to the table, and they all resisted. You can't work with that. That's it for this week. If you liked what you saw, don't forget to hit that subscribe button, and I will see you guys later. Bye.